Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to be hearing about the book Our Blood, 1976 by Andrea Dworkin, discussed by an Indian feminist and Marian Rutiliano. So uh, welcome everybody and I'm very pleased to hand over to our speakers. Hi, this is the book. Um... Our Blood, published in the U.S. in 1976. I think this is actually the British version, um, published in 1981. Um, and uh, Andrea Dworkin, um, the book deals with the forms taken by male violence against women in our society, sexual brutality, psychological abuse, cultural um, denigration. Andrea Dworkin is both very easy to read and very hard to read um, because she writes very, very straightforward. You will not find any butleresque, um, you know, uh, windings of like, you know, three page sentences or, <laughs> or paragraphs that last, you know, last an entire chapter. Um, she's very, very straightforward the way she lays things out, but she talks about things that are very, very difficult to hear um, and very difficult to, to um, admit to ourselves sometimes are really happening. So she wrote this book because she couldn't get her work published after the, what was a very grudging publication of Woman Hating, her first book in 1974. Um, Our Blood is a collection of talks or, or lectures um, that she gave. Um, if she couldn't, she figured if she couldn't get published so women could read her work, she would speak so they could hear it. So she did that for um, a few years until um, her second, her next book finally got published. No one would publish Our Blood as a collection of essays until she found a publisher with an active woman's group. Um, I'm going to go through the first three chapters. The first three chapters are, are rather short, and they kind of connect and give us a, um, a, 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 an outline of, of what the core is of what, what Andrea Dworkin is saying. First one is Feminism, Art, and My Mother, Sylvia. This was a lecture at Smith College which was then completely a women's college. I think they let in men now. Um, this was in 1974. And she uh, talks about her parents who were the children of immigrants, which for us baby boomers um, is, is true, for, was true for a lot of us. Um, her mother was consigned to, you know, in, in, in keeping with the day, not being encouraged to really to read or to go to college, to get married as soon as possible. <clears throat> her life was limited in terms of her life choices. Her father, um, her father, on the other hand, wanted his kids, ed kids educated as fully as possible, including his daughter. And that was very unusual at the time. Daughters, you know, fathers did not um, really encourage their daughters to do that. Um, but he encouraged her ideas and ambitions. Her mother did not encourage any of this. Um, her mother did what mothers of the time did, which was encourage Andrea to just, you know, get married and, you know, find a husband, get married and just, you know, maybe be a secretary or, or have kids. Um, so her father, she said, really became the only influence in her life um, that she had any regard for. Um, she said she had no sympathy for my mother. And that may sound familiar to, um, to a lot of women. I mean, um, when, when we, we talk about this saying, yeah, you know, I thought my mother was trivial. I, you know, I, she was very bright. She had nothing to say to me. Some of us had great um, um, relationships with, with our mother, but some of them um, really just, you know, did not regard our mothers well. And she... Um, so she had no sympathy for her mother, and she thought her mother, she said she thought her mother was stupid and uninteresting with no passion or wisdom. Uh, and this she, this, she talks about life events of women that she met or knew throughout her life. Um, she talks about herself, you know, first having been in jail and sexually abused there by male doctors and 
um, and, and she was in jail when she was arrested after a, a protest um, and meeting other women there and finding out what they had gone through with, with their lives. She talks about having a marriage, you know, which started out um, as she said a friendship and ended very, very badly. Talks about living in poverty. Um, she talks about becoming a feminist and that it happened slowly, little by little. She had talked to um, um, a, a woman who's, uh, whose family had been killed in the Holocaust um, and what had happened to them. And all of this talking to other women sounds an awful lot like what um, was done sort of, um, uh, you know, she did in her life what, what some women went to consciousness raising groups to do is to find out this is what happened to other women. And, and it was, it, you mean, it wasn't just you, it wasn't just you, it wasn't just you. So she she began recognizing um, in herself that um, that she, you know her mother hadn't felt like she deserved anything better in her life, and she you know Andrea herself said, well you know we don't really deserve anything better in our life, and saw this as um, the kernel of what leads to a masochism, a kind of masochism, and we think of masochism as sexual, but it really starts with this. Um, my mother's life is trivial. My life is trivial. Um, I don't deserve much better. None of us do. Um, she, and she started to wonder, how did this happen? You know, she hadn't been taught. Um, she was just living in a world where women are despised so that women lose the realization of, of that. Um, and, then, and then they despise other women, you know, daughters, friends, um, and especially other women who rebel. She, you know, and she said she eventually found feminism and learned to see her mother as a sister. Um, she um, then goes on to talk about how this plays out in the world of art and the art that she's talking about is is literature. You know, she said, uh, um, and I, I like to read uh, um, passages from her books um, more than others in some ways, just because of the way she writes. Um, she talks about, um, you know, the writing and literature that has degraded women. Um, that it has almost without exception characterized us as maimed beings, impoverished sensibilities, trivial people with trivial concerns. She uses that word trivial a lot. Um, it has almost without exception been saturated with a misogyny um, so profound, a misogyny that um, was in fact its worldview that almost all of us until today have thought that that's what the world is and that's how women are. <clears throat> and she um, And she goes on further to talk about um, about how we have accepted this so much, the world accepts it so much, but as feminists, um, we inhabit and we need to inhabit the world in a new way, that we see the world in a new way and that we, we threaten, um, if we are, if we are uh, the radical feminists we purport to be, we threaten to turn it upside down and inside out and that we intend to change it so totally that someday the text of masculinist writers um, will be anthropological curiosities. Um, she uh, talks about uh, Norman Mailer and, and, and wants someday for everyone to say, huh, what was Mailer talking about? Because his work really denigrated women. Um, someday she wants, she wants um, people to say, what was he talking about? You know, our descendants would ask, should they come upon his work in some obscure archive? And they will wonder, bewildered, sad at the glorification of war, mystifications around killing, maiming, violence, and pain, the tortured masks of phallic heroism, the vain arrogance of phallic supremacy, the impoverished renderings of mothers and daughters, and so on. And they will ask, do these, those people really believe in those gods? Um, so it's important to, to again, to really um, think about the word masochism, not, not so much as its end stage of 
um, sexual practices, but at the beginning stage of um, this is all my life is, this is all I'm capable of, this is, I, you know, and because if you can start to believe that your life is really trivial, trivial, you can start to believe that it's not worth much and you deserve whatever denigration you get. That's the beginning of masochism. And then um, as, as feminists, um, we think, you know, we, we want to go on and say, what do we do about this? And the second chapter is renouncing sexual equality. This was a, a talk she gave at a NOW conference on sexuality in 1974. NOW, National Organization for Women, usually acts usually, you know, used to be um, an organization that really tried to represent um, the rights of women back then um, and has long since departed from that, that mission. And she starts with a reference to a um, work of, of Kate Millett in sexual politics. <clears throat> in that book, she proved to, to many of us who would have staked our lives on denying it that sexual relations, the literature depicting those relations, the psychology posturing to explain those relations, the economic systems that fix the necessities of those relations, the religious systems that seek to control those relations are political. She showed us that everything that happens to a woman in her life, everything that touches or molds her is political. And when we say and we hear the expression, the personal is political, um, one of the books that I, I really, the first feminist book I ever read was Sexual Politics. And little 14-year-old me at the time, um, who hadn't ever had sex, um, kind of understood it and was privileged to be able to actually talk to Kate Millett a couple of times and ask her about this. But this is, you know, this passage, this is sort of the crux of what Kate Millett was saying in sexual politics. Um, and and she's, and Dworkin goes on to talk about the definitions of words like equality, state of being equal, freedom, the state of being at liberty rather than in confinement or under restraint, and justice, the quality of being just, righteousness, equitableness, or moral rightness. So that she says, knowing this, that the personal is political, um, that women who are feminists, that is women who grasped Millet's analysis and saw that it explains so much of their real existence and their real lives, have tried to understand and struggle against and transform the political system called patriarchy, which exploits our labor, predetermines the ownership of our bodies, belong to men, and diminishes our selfhood from the day we are born. And there is no dimension to this that is abstract. It, it touches us in every part of our lives. And again, women who went to consciousness raising um, or you know, read these books and, and understood what they meant, um, realized that this is not abstract. This is reality of the life. Um, and nowhere has it touched us more vividly or painfully than in that part of our human lives, which we call love and sex. In the course of our struggle to free ourselves from systematic oppression, um, a serious argument has developed among us. And I want to bring that argument into the room. And then she talks about um, saying women, some women, some feminists who thought it was all about equality and that, and that it should be all about equality. Um, and, and that, um, uh, that, you know, that means that we develop like a matriarchy and that the matriarchy replaces patriarchy so that everybody can be equal. Um, but she says, no, you know, she says, no, what we seek is universal freedom um, and justice and that there is no freedom or justice in exchanging the female role for the male role that we don't become then in, in seeking equality, we don't become men. I like to say that, you know, do I want to be equal with men? No, that's a demotion. You know, I really don't want to be less than what I am. I don't want equality. Um, not, not with men. They should want equality with us. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want that kind of demotion. Um, so mimicking men and male sexuality just contributes to the oppression of women. And one 
really famous uh, uh, passage that she talks about um, <clears throat> is, is that she says, I suggest to you that the transformation of the male sexual model under which we all now labor and love begins where there is congruence, not a separation, a congruence of feeling and erotic interest that it begins in what we do know about female sexuality as distinct from male, clitoral touch and sensitivity, multiple orgasms, erotic sensitivity all over the body. Um, and she, um, she starts with sex because that is for, you know, most women, most women heterosexual, um, that relationship um, is, is um, sort of a, a microcosm of, um, of everything else that, um, that, that women come across with men in the world. And, and on the flip side, when you look at how the systematic oppression of women, um, it kind of devolves back into sexuality. So she says that the model should be female sexuality, not male sexuality. And she says, I am saying, and this, she got really, boy, did she get criticized for this in the papers. She says, I'm saying that men will have to renounce their phallocentric personalities and the privilege and, privileges and powers given to them at birth as a consequence of their anatomy, that they will have to excise everything in them that they now value as distinctly male. No reform or matching of orgasms will accomplish this. I suspect that this transformation for men begins in the place that they most dread, that is, in a limp penis. And I think that men will have to give up their precious erections and begin to make love as women do together. I find this really interesting and I suppose it's a debate on, on itself. But the point she's making is that is that um, one of the places um, where where um, uh, we talk about um, liberation rather than equality is in um, the female model of sexuality <clears throat> as well as everything else <clears throat> becoming the standard rather than the male model. And she finally goes on to um, this third short chapter, Remembering the Witches, which was um, again given at a now chapter conference in New York City on Halloween night in 1974. She talks about gynocide as the systematic crippling, raping, and or killing of women by men. Um, and she gives examples of Chinese foot binding. Um, and what was in the news at that time was the systematic rape of, of um, women in Bangladesh, um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And, um, and the killing of 9 million women as witches over a course of 300 years in a number of countries. You weren't safe anywhere, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, Holland, Switzerland, England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, America, it was all over the place. Um, and talks about things that we know about it began, really began officially in 1484. Um, the book, The Malleus Maleferum, which was really a, a horrendous tome if you ever look at it, it's, you know, talks about why witchcraft is a woman's crime. Women are more carnal than men because of Eve. Really, just all this, all this stuff that um, I don't need to necessarily go over. Um, witches could supposedly steal males' genitals um, or cause men's genitals to disappear, according to this book. Um, and she just sums it up by saying it was a gargantuan mass of woman hating, um, which it really was. So when she talks about um, when she goes on to talk about this, she. Um, she says that women talk about violence against them as an individual thing, that they experience violence in their personal lives and that it's just, well, this is a bad guy or this happened to me and it was just to me. And again, um, women in consciousness raising found out, no, it wasn't just me. And, and this is what Dworkin is saying that we find out that it's not just me. Um, and she uh, says that men too say that they are oppressed that they're often in their individual lives, victimized by women, mothers, wives, and girlfriends, that women promote, promote acts of violence through our 
carnality or malice or avarice or something. Um, and, and men tell us that their violence originates in us and that we're responsible for it. So what are we to think about this? You know, when we piece this all together, is this just, just individual things? No, um, we look at um, um, men's novels, poems, their political and philosophical tracks. Um, and how they all behave, um, and that they think of us today what the inquisitors thought of us yesterday. And, and she concludes by saying that the feminist struggle is not a struggle for more money per hour or for equal rights under male law, or for more women legislators who operate within the confines of male law. These are all emergency measures designed to save women's lives as many as possible now, but these reforms will not stem the tide of gynocide. These reforms will not end the relentless violence perpetrated by the gender class men against the gender class women. And no personal accommodations within the system of patriarchy will stop this. Under patriarchy, no woman is safe to live her life or to love or to mother children. Every woman is a victim under patriarchy, past, present, and future. Under patriarchy, every woman's daughter is a victim, past, present, and future. And under patriarchy, Every woman's son is her potential betrayer and also the inevitable rapist or exploiter of another woman. So before we can live in love, we have to hone ourselves into a revolutionary sisterhood um, and rebel against the patriarchy that feeds on our dirty blood that is built on our trivial labor. And that's, that's like the introduction. You read those first three chapters and you're like, oh my God, holy smoke. Um, but that's, I mean, that's why Andrea Dworkin is so phenomenal. I mean, this is all clear, but it's very, very difficult to hear. And it tells us some things that maybe we don't want to hear. I'll go to our other speaker who, who's going to talk about uh, the next couple of chapters. Thank you, Marian. Um, in the fourth chapter, Dawkins talks about rape as an atrocity against women as a sex class. Dawkins refers to a number of texts in religion, examples of Greek culture and English law to explain how men have always been considered as entitled to fuck women and writes, rape is the first model for marriage. As such, it is sanctioned by the Bible and by thousands of years of law, custom and habit. Rape is an act of theft. Theft. A man takes the sexual property of another man. Rape is, by law and custom, a crime against men, against the particular owner of a particular woman. Rape is the primary heterosexual model for sexual relating. Rape is the primary emblem of romantic love. Rape is the me means by which a woman is initiated into her womanhood and as it is defined by men. Rape is the right of any man who desires any woman as long as she is not explicitly owned by another man. Dawkins insists that it is important for women to be able to name rape for what it is, and she names it as follows. She says that it is a crime against women, an act of aggression against women, contemptuous and hostile act against women, violation of a woman's right to self-determination, an act of sadistic domination, a colonizing act, a function of male imperialism over and against women, and a crime committed against all women. Dawkins says that rape is committed by, um, I'm sorry, uh, she, she also says that uh, that rape is, is not committed by psychopaths, that it is committed by, by men just around women. And more than half of the time, the, uh, the perpetrator knows the victim. So she says that there is nothing except a conviction for rape, which is very hard to obtain, to distinguish the rapist from the non-rapist. 
But feminists know that this is not how most of the society understands men and rape. In fact, we constantly want to segregate men and rapists as much as possible. So punters are not rapists. Men who inflict their pornographic fantasies onto women are not rapists. And men who deceive women into sex are not rapists either. And opposing this segregation uh, is, is becoming harder for women because men are now able to access women's spaces. And there is no serious institutional recognition of the possibility of male violence occurring in these spaces because of men's intrusion. But Dawkins reminds us of the scale and the severity of the problem, as she says, rape is a crime of such violence and that it is so rampant that we must view it as an ongoing atrocity against women. All women live in constant jeopardy in a virtual state of siege. Dawkins also says that rape is foremost a violation on the basis of sex, that of women as a sex class, and men from all different walks of life do have an interest in retaining the liberty to violate women. She says, all women of all races should recognize that male bonding takes precedence over racial bonding, except in one particular kind of rape. That is where the rape is viewed as the proper, that is where the woman is viewed as the property of one race, class or nationality, and her rape is viewed as an act of aggression against the males of that race, class or nationality. The issue is never whether a crime has been committed against a particular. Dawkins also describes what she understands as the root cause of rape, and she says that the root cause of, of male aggression as it uh, expresses itself in rape is, is that under male supremacy, the possession of the phallus is, is the only signet of human worth. And everyone else who does not have it, by, by which she means women, are, are less than human, are, do not have integrity. They can then be colonized and they can then be, uh, you know, they can then be dominated over. In, in, in her chapter five, she talks about fear and she also talks about masochism, some of which we have discussed already. She says that fear is learned as a function of femininity and courage is the red badge of masculinity. As women, we, we learn fear as a function of our so-called femininity. We are taught systematically to be afraid and we are taught that to be afraid not only is congruent with femininity, but also inherent. We are taught to be afraid so that we will not be able to act, so that we will be passive, so that we will be women. She says that by the time we are women, fear is as familiar to us as air. It is our element. We live in it. We inhale it. We exhale it. And most of the time, we do not even notice it. Instead of saying, I am afraid, we say, I don't want to, I don't know how, or I can't. Fear, as women experience experiences, experience it as three main has three main characteristics it is isolating it is confusing and it is debilitating it is also consistent consistently and progressively debilitating each act outside a woman's allowable sphere provokes punishment and this punishment is as inevitable as nightfall each punishment inculcates fear like a rat a woman will try to avoid these high voltage electric shocks which seem to mine the maze she too wants the legendary big cheese at the end but for her, the maze never ends. Then this dynamic of fear, as I have described it, is the source of what men so glibly and happily call female masculine. And of course, when one's identity is defined as a lack of identity, when one's survival is contingent on learning to destroy or restrain every impulse towards self-definition, 
when one is consistently and exclusively rewarded for hurting oneself by conforming to demeaning or degrading rules of behavior, when one is consistently and inevitably punished for accomplishing or succeeding or resulting, when one is battered and rammed physically and or emotionally for any act or thought of rebellion and then applauded and approved for giving in, recanting, apologizing, then masochism does indeed become the cornerstone of one's personality. And as you might already know, it is very hard for masochists to find the pride, the strength, the inner freedom, and the courage to organize against their oppressors. But Dawkin also has the following thoughts on how women can build courage to oppose their oppression. She says, that we would see that female strength and courage have developed out of the very circumstances of our oppression, out of our lives as breeders and domestic chattel. Until now, we have used those qualities to endure under devastating and terrifying conditions, squatting in fields, isolated in bedrooms, in slums, in shacks, or in hospitals, women endure the ordeal of giving birth. This physical act of giving birth requires physical courage of the highest order. It is the prototypical act of authentic physical courage. One's life is each time on the line. One faces death each time. One endures, withstands, or is consumed by pain. Survival demands stamina, strength, concentration, and willpower. No phallic hero, no matter what he does to himself, or to another to prove his courage ever matches the solitary existential courage of the woman who gives birth. We need not continue to have children in order to claim the dignity of realizing our own capacity of physical courage. This capacity is ours, it belongs to us, and it has belonged to us since the beginning of time. What we must do now is to reclaim this capacity, take it out of the service of men, make it visible to ourselves, and determine how to use it in the service of feminist revolution. So Dawkin is consistently clear that we need to, uh, that women need to oppose this system of male supremacy, wherein the entire source of human worth is is based in the possession of a father. But she's also, uh, she, she's also against violence. She, 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 she encourages women to find courage in 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 their uh, you know in in the, in the ways in the, the the many ways in which women across the world have uh, have battled male oppression and and violence and uh, you know even even in today's time when we have the gender uh, identity cult sort of uh, persecuting women for for not uh, conceding to their demands you know, women, we have found our own spaces, we have found our own voice, we have found our own ways to to push against it, to to say that we we do not agree with this and that we are here and that we are adult human females. So in I mean this there's no way to say it in there's no there's no clearer way of putting it. And Dawkins does that. So um, I think now we can move on to uh, to the other chapters about nonviolence. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is, you know, this is, think of what she's doing in this book. She's talking about how women are programmed since the day we are born um, to see ourselves as less than or other than um, so that, you know, male sexuality and everything, you know, all, everything that men are socialized into, domination, violation, become um, not just the positive, but also the neutral, the way things are supposed to be. Um, and what men have done to women, um, including rape. And, you know, some men are, um, are, I think it's kind of vicious, vicious enough to say um, um, that 
what's the big deal? Rape just means you had sex you didn't want and how bad is that? Um, so th this is like not an uncommon thing. Um, we want to rebel against this. And we've been um, talking a lot, um, you know, in, in this uh, webinars and other webinars about nonviolence. And she's got a chapter here about redefining nonviolence. This was a lecture at Boston College in 1975. She talks about the manifestations of sexism, the things that, you know, um, are violence against women um, that don't necessarily involve beating us or breaking fingers, which, you know, which um, is what we typically think of as violence, but, but that everything um, in, our, in our place in the world as defined by men is that of submission. Um, and in, in, um, in, in, in opposition to, to male domination and male violation. So she, she talks about um, manifestations of sexism, saying that sexism festers. And she goes on and she talks about things festering. And fester means to just become, um, you know, to become rotten, <laughs> essentially. Uh, she starts, though, by talking about um, fighting with our heart and soul for civil rights for Blacks. Um, and we recognize, and we still recognize, um, the, the horrendous um, evils of, um, of racism and that um, it's a festering pathology and has to be challenged wherever it appears. And that we need to make the same, the same claim and have the same commitment for sexism. And this is where she talks about festering. It festers in every house. It festers in every law court. It festers in every job situation. It festers in television shows. It festers everywhere when we were raped, when we're married. Um, it festers when we're taught to venerate and respect male voices, so we have no voices of our own. Um, she says that every social form of hierarchy and abuse is modeled on male over female domination, <clears throat> and we and and women see from the time that we're we're young that um, if the men that the men around us take this seriously, that that is how they think the world should be. Um, but she says, and, and, you know, and she was so prescient about so many things and saw what was happening to men on the left, that any man who truly recognizes your right to dignity and freedom will recognize the dread symptoms of sexism must be challenged wherever they appear. And any man who is your true comrade will be committed to laying his body, his life on the line so that you will be subject, subjected to that indignity no longer. Um, I ask you to look at your male comrades on the left and to determine whether they have made that commitment to you. She looks at feminism and said, we, we, we look at the past. You know, we look at the past and it's a bitter exploration because we find, you know, that for centuries, um, all through recorded time, women have been violated, exploited, demeaned um, systematically and unconscionably. Millions and millions of women have died as the victims of organized genocide. She says, we look at the present, how, how society is presently organized. How do women live now? Um, how does the global system of oppression based on, and she used the word gender, but sex, how does that work? Um, how does it take lives? What does it do? Um, and, it, 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 and it puts women in, in chains, which we need to shed. And then she says um, that it's systematic. It's, and we can see that it's systematic because it permeates everywhere. There just aren't any of um, exceptions. And that's what she means to look at the present, look at all these systems, and we can see that it's systematic. And finally, to look at the future and to renounce slave behavior. And this is not victim blaming. Um, no decision is made in a vacuum. Um, if you grow up in a, uh, a slave labor camp, you don't know anything else. This is what you were taught. You were taught you are a slave in the slave labor camp. 
So um, part of escaping is to renounce slave behavior that says you belong there, that you can never escape, that it would be harmful to the to the um, to the slave owners or to the guards um, um, if you hurt them, um, if you hurt their feelings, or if you or if you killed them by you know by trying to escape. Um, so. And she says to do this will be insanely difficult because it will be met with the full force and cruelty of the oppressor head on. And it might not just be broken fingers. It might be uh, even worse violence. But the facts of our oppression are that we are invisible to our oppressors. They just view us as you know, trivial objects to be used for their, their pleasure. Um, we are trained for centuries from infancy to see ourselves through the eyes of the oppressors so that we are invisible even to ourselves. And that our oppressors are not just male heads of state or male capitalists and so forth, but also our fathers, sons, husbands, brothers, and lovers, because this is systematic. Um, it, it, it pervades every system um, from the nuclear family to the school, to uh, the school board, to wherever. Um, and yet still women ask, what can we do for them, for men? Oh, we can raise our sons better. Oh, what can we do for men? Men are hurt by this too. When we should instead be asking, what must they now do for us? Um, we shouldn't be asking, what can we do for them? We should be saying, you must do this for us. And this question must be the first question in any political dialogue with men. Um, and she warns that um, each time a woman does renounce slave behavior, she will meet the full force and cruelty of her oppressor head on. We know this, um, women know this. So she says, I suggest to you that any commitment to nonviolence, which is real, which is authentic, must begin in the recognition of the forms and degrees of violence perpetrated against women by the gender class, sex class men. I suggest to you that any analysis of violence or any commitment act against it, which does not begin there, is hollow and meaningless. And she says that um, ultimately that um, the refusal to be a victim does not originate in any act of resistance as male-derived as killing. That's not it. That our nonviolent project is to find the social, sexual, political, and cultural forms which repudiate our programmed submissive behaviors so that male aggression can find no dead flesh on which, which to feast. So that nonviolence for women um, has to begin in the refusal to be violated and victimized and with finding alternatives to submission. So there is a systematic system of male domination, um, which is reflected in sexual relations at the most individual level, but is systematic through every, every institution, um, greater or lesser in society. And our goal um, should be to substitute not a matriarchy, um, but a, a system where we are not submissive to that. It, and there's a, a short chapter after that, which is, um, um, you know, it's called Lesbian Pride. And it was at a, uh, a speech she was making a, on a lesbian pride uh, uh, gathering in New York City in Central Park in 1975. And I was there and I heard her um, give this speech. Well, actually I didn't hear much of it because I wasn't quite close enough, but it's the shortest speech in the book. and you know, it's it's um, she, it was supposed to be an inspirational thing at the time. There were all these lesbians around, just you know, yeah, yeah, looking. Um, and she she says that being a lesbian um, involves a love of women, that it's emotional, psychological, physical, sexual, erotic, 
um, and that we ultimately see um, that this love of women um, extends to um, loving our mothers, um, even as our sisters and, and all women as our sisters. And she talks about, not in this speech, but elsewhere that um, we fight for all women, even the ones we don't like. Um, she um, talked in this speech about omin that there are ominous forebodings about how bad things would get for women, for lesbians. And she's really, she's kind of a, like, a, um, like an, an oracle of how bad things are gonna get, um, but hopeful knowing that the sun is still shining no matter how dark it gets. It was supposed to be inspirational and, and I was there for it and didn't hear much of it. So it, it's always good to read what she actually said. Um, and I'll um, go on to uh, our other speaker for the, uh, um, the next, uh, next chapter. Yes. Um, so the next chapter that she talks about is, it, she calls it, uh, she deals with the issue of uh, race and slavery in America. She focuses on America, but of course, uh, you know, the principle, the sort of ideas that she gives, she hopes to be uh, the ideas that it, it, they'll be true for the feminist movement as a whole. Um, in this chapter, Dawkin offers an understanding of slavery in, 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 she offers a feminist understanding of slavery and she and her understanding is rooted in the feminist opposition to male supremacy as it rests and thrives on the value of domination. She writes that the first slaves brought to this country, that is America, by Anglo-Saxon imperialists were women, white women. Their slavery was sanctified by religious and civil law, reified by custom and tradition, and enforced by the systematic sadism of men as a slave-owning class. She, so Dawkin discusses English law at the time, which law was, of course, then tra uh, transferred to the British colonies. And under this law, married women were entirely the chattel of their husbands. They did not have a, have an, have a political existence of their own. And so it is in this sense that Dawkin calls the women brought into the colonies as the slaves of their husbands. Dawkin writes, women were imported into the colonies to breed. Just as a man bought land so that he could grow food, he bought a wife so that he could grow sons. A man owned his wife and all that she produced. According to law, a man even owned a woman's unborn children. He also owned any personal property she might have. He also, of course, had the right to her labor, to her labor as, as a domestic and owned all that she made with her hands, be it food, food, clothing, textiles, etc. And a man also had the right of corporal punishment. Wives were whipped and beaten for disobedience or on whim with the full sanction of law and custom. Every married man, no matter how poor, owned one slave, his wife. Every married man, no matter how powerless compared to other men, had absolute power over one slave, his wife. Every married man, no matter what his rank in the world of men, was tyrant and master over one woman, his wife. Dawkins goes on to explain that the practice of buying black women and men as slaves in America grew out of this pursuit of domination, which was already in exercise over women. She says, whatever dimension of human conscience must atrophy before men can turn other humans into chattel had become shriveled and useless long before the first black slaves were imported into the English colonies. The laws that fixed the chattel status of white women were now extended to apply to the black slave. The divine right, which had sanctioned the slavery of women to men, was now interpreted to make the slavery of blacks to white men a function of God's will. 
the malicious notion of biological inferiority, which originated to justify the abject subjugation of women to men, was now expanded to justify the abject, abject subjugation of blacks to whites. So Dawkins here, she is not substitute, substituting one experience with another. She is saying that slavery of women and of black men and women is based in the masculinist value of domination of that uh, of that phallic identity, that phallic worth that she talks about in her previous chapters, and that is the main sort of the main idea throughout the book because it's it's, it's kind of recurring. She also discusses uh, the treatment of black black women who were brought as who were brought as slave and she slaves, and she writes the condition of the black woman in slavery was determined first by her sex, then by her race. The nature of her servitude differed from that of the black male because she was carnal chattel, a sexual commodity subject to the sexual will of her white master. In the field or in the house, she endured the same conditions as the male slave, but the black woman was bred like a beast of burden. Whether the stud who mounted her was a white master or a black slave of his choosing. Her economic worth, always less th than that of a black male, was measured first by her capacity as a breeder to produce more wealth in the form of more slaves, then by her capacity as a field or house slave. Dawkins also adds that white women were in parallel enslaved as ornaments under different conditions, with their bodies mutilated by corsets, their mental capacities starved, and the continued denial of any political rights. The expensive gowns which adorn the lady, her leisure, and her vacuity have obscured for many the cold, hard reality of her status as carnal chattel. Since her function was to signify male wealth, it is often assumed that she possessed that wealth. Dawkins says that the genius of any slave system is found in the dynamics which isolate slaves from each other, obscure the reality of a common condition and make united rebellion against the oppressor inconceivable. And as all women are enslaved to men, we learn to despise our own kind and are hence are not able to see the source of our oppression and unite against it. So she then talks about how white women uh, inflicted violence on black women who were enslaved. And uh, at the same time, the white women would then socialize their own daughters into that same system of being an ornament of male wealth meant to be married off and without any political rights whatsoever. Um, it is also interesting uh, how Dawkins describes the denial of the vote to black women. She says, abolitionist men had betrayed one half of the population of former black slaves, black women who had no civil existence under the 14th Amendment. And uh, to me, I mean, I found this unlike the view that is held elsewhere, that the politics of women who organized for the vote in America excluded black women. Uh, I mean, of course, this is not an easy chapter to read, but it's this is not the only time that she has articulated this this sort of idea where she said that you know, uh, so, women as a whole class are living under this abject uh, subjugation by men, uh, women from all walks of life. Uh, it's it's not the first time that she's saying it, but it's definitely uh, you know it's it's a, it's a difficult read. Uh, but I, I would suggest that you read it nevertheless. Um, so she's, I mean, she's clear throughout the book and even in this chapter, she says that we need, that women need to organize as a whole and together against male supremacy. She says that if slavery is ever to be destroyed root and branch, women will have to destroy it. Men, as their history attests, will only pluck its buds and pick its flowers. 
so it's it's a it's a really powerful chapter uh, and it's not it's not easy to read none of her work is um but it's 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 really something that i would i would recommend you to uh, okay um yeah very hard chapter to read the final chapter is called the root cause and um the radical and radical feminism means root it's a, a term from mathematics you know under a square root sign the root um getting to the root of it um, that's where the radical and radical feminism comes from it's radical under the, uh, the square root sign um and this was a talk given at mit in 1975 um oh uh, if you're not from this country, MIT is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, a really premier, um, you know, Ivy League caliber engineering school. They also teach other things. Um, so uh, an unusual place for her to speak, but they did have a, um, an active women's group um, at one time, um, or some women there, not a lot. Um, so she talks about the root cause. Where does all this come from? She's been talking about really awful stuff throughout this whole book um, that that you know start with the in and it, you know individual relationships between a man and a woman that are systemically carried throughout society in every institution um so where what's the root where did this come from and she she notes that she says you know people have believed all sorts of things and called it called them reality you know that the earth is flat um we didn't know that it wasn't flat until it, it was proved um that it wasn't by you know people sailing far enough and not going over the edge. Um, so we don't know something is false until it's proved to match. And so we don't know something is true until it's proved to match actual reality. Um, and that is the basis upon which um, we, we should be formulating our analyses of, is this true? Um, so one basic principle of reality, reality is that there are two sexes. People knew this at one time. I mean, everybody knew it and there was no argument about it. And still 99.9999999999% of people still know that, that there are only two sexes and that they are you know, immutable. Um, however, we have attached beliefs to that reality. The reality is that there are two sexes, but we have attached other beliefs um, to that reality about the nature of the sexes. We have attributed characteristics to these two separate sexes and assume that because we know the reality is that there are two sexes, that there must also be a reality of what we can expect or should expect from the behavior of those two sexes. Um, males, it is asserted, um, have positive qualities. They are active, strong, and courageous. Women have the negative qualities, essentially, of being passive, weak, and fearful. And somehow, the, the reality of the fact that there are two sexes um, has been conflated with this belief, which is not based in reality, that males have these positive qualities and females have these negative qualities. Um, and this is held by men to somehow be a egalitarian because, well, these, they're opposite. So they make a harmonious whole. Women are just the negative of men, um, except that it turns out that the male positive qualities also turn out to be um, Quality, neutral qualities. You know, we talk about the rights of man and it means the rights of men, essentially. And these qualities of being active, strong, and courageous are the qualities of the best people. Um, so, that, so that men are positive and men are neutral and women are negative. And somehow um, the reality of two sexes has been conflated with 
Men have these positive qualities, active, strong, courageous, and women are negative. This is sex role stereotypes, what we used to call sex role stereotypes. This is gender. Um, and that she starts out with as, a, as the root. This is the root of male sadism. It doesn't start out as whips and chains. Um, it starts out with men having positive qualities and female masochism, which is not tie me up, tie me up, um, starts out with women being told and being inculcated to believe that they have these negative qualities and that their lives are negative and trivial and of little to no value. So gender um, and genders <laughs> um, or is the root of male dominance and female submission or sadism and masochism. Everything comes from this. Everything, you know, if you go through a process um, of, of steps and everything comes from this, pornography, violence against women, all of it. Um, she, uh, she talks about heterosexuality, which used to be in the early women's movement, um, a wide open topic for debate, conversation and discussion. Um, we, we shy away from it now. Many women find it, um, very, very defensive when talking about it. But Andrea said, you know, heterosexuality, which can be defined as the sexual dominance of men over women is like an acorn from it grows the mighty oak. Um, and heterosexuality starts with men with positive qualities, sadism, women with negative qualities, masochism, everything starts in that. She goes on to say that this is all enacted within um, the uh, act of men um, penetrating women. And she wrote a whole book about it called Intercourse, which I encourage you to to read. And so she says, um, she, she knows, I mean, and, and we know that while the system of gender polarity is real, it is not true. Um, it is real because people act on it. It is real because um, girls are taught this from the day they're born, boys are taught this from the day they're born, but it doesn't make it true. Um, and that's what gender is. Um, and that's, that's the start, that's the root, that's the acorn of everything that follows from it. And she, she, subs, she winds up by saying that only when manhood is dead and it will perish, um, when ravaged femininity no longer sustains it, only then will we know what it is to be free. Um, I can, um, it's, it's, a, it's a short book. Um, I think we've gotten through um, some, some of the most significant parts of it. If anyone yes. has any questions, um, we can take that now and there's a comment um, in the chat that Andrea was writing intercourse in the mid 80s when with her gay male companion Stoltenberg. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, um, I don't necessarily want to get into that too much because I don't know very much about it. Um, but she, uh, she did have a relationship of, of some sort with this guy and I'm not sure um, what it was. Personally, I'm not sure if she needed his health insurance. I mean, I, I don't, I just don't know. Um, but, uh, but he, uh, um, he was made the, uh, like the, the trustee or the, um, or the, uh, the person who was going to take care of all her works, all her written works. And he, he has not necessarily proven as far as I know, to be a reliable trustee. I think he has, um, um, he has added commentary to, uh, what she, you know, or interpretations to what she said about different things. Um, and there's a question, I don't understand what she thought we should do about her situation, um, to not cooperate and to demand. Um, Uncooperation, and we've been talking about this again in some of the um, talks about, uh, about nonviolence, um, is just, is, is not cooperating, um, is, is just 
um, not saying, oh, okay, we'll go along with this. It's just, no, we demand that you do this um, and simply not cooperating. And that can mean not engaging with men um, throughout um, institutions, but all the way down to the, to the personal level. Um, don't, you know, nobody's asking, nobody's saying you should like, you know, if you've got this great guy, good, you know, I'm happy for you. Um, and nobody is saying that you should walk away from what you feel is a wonderful marriage and things like that. But if you have a choice, um, abandon men. Um, we used to use that term um, and she doesn't, she's used it occasionally, although not in this book, um, but that um, you, you walk away, you walk away from this. It's just, you know, uh, and, and women are doing this. Men are, young men are starting to complain about, um, gosh, you know, women want to go out with men anymore. Um, well, yeah, because um, it's not, <laughs> it's not to their benefit. Um, and and young, some young women are starting to see that in this, and yet they still hold out hope of like, well, what, what can we do to make men um, better so that we'll want to be with them? It's just like, there's nothing you can do. You can walk away, um, you can demand what you want from them, and then they will either change or they won't. Um, so that's, um, that's part of what she's saying to do, and that's really Good, hard. Goodbye right? to all that. Yeah. Goodbye to all that. Yeah, Good, yeah. More young women need to to write about. It. We need to bring that title back. Goodbye to all that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Do you have anything else? At no point. Can... At no point does she say uh, that we should have. You know, that we can't have blood dripping uh, from our hands. So yes, separatism. Some form of separatism, non-cooperation. She doesn't use the word separatism in the book, but that's right. And somebody else talks about. Um... Uh, the shock in the eyes of a man when a woman says no. Um, and that starts, and you know, that you can see that in even simple little everyday events. I'm pretty little. I mean, I'm like five foot two and I, you know, I mean, I weigh more than I used to, but I'm still not, I'm not very big. Um, and so if I'm walking and a man, man is walking towards me, who moves? I don't move. Um, and sometimes I get bumped, but sometimes I just like look at my phone or I'm looking at something and, and, and I'm, and, I mentally make the man absolutely invisible um, and he realizes it and I can tell he's just like, what's this? She's not moving. And he walks around me. Um, and that's just like one individual act of resistance. And I'm not saying anybody should or shouldn't do that. Um, but, but the shock, if you say no, with as simple a thing as like, I'm not moving over, um, just men don't know what to do about it. Um, somebody's also talking about female dating strategy in the... Um, um, in the uh, in the chat, um, I don't you know I don't I don't date men, so I've only I don't know about it either. Yeah, I've I don't only know about occasionally seen it, but it's still about women who want to find that that one special Nigel. Um, so I, I don't you know, and and what Andrea is saying is just like this is no you know just don't engage with them at all. There's nothing you can do to change them. Um, will you will you find that you know one diamond in the rough? Um, I don't know, but it's if he's still in the rough, you shouldn't be the one who has to, to make him um, better. Um, any other questions in the chat? Okay. Um, do you have anything else to add, my anonymous? I just I just wanted to add that one bit uh, at the beginning of the fourth chapter, which I could uh, relate to, and I'm I, I'm sure many other young women relate to it as well. She said that we walked out of university completely ignorant of about about the about women's condition. We had learned of all these male authors and writers and philosophers, the staff. Uh, they never taught us anything. Uh, you know, they they agreed with with Freud that we that women have a penis envy. 
So she's talking about that part where where women's knowledge of their condition is repressed and suppressed. So, uh, and that is true even today. I mean, uh, that that is very much true even today. So that, I just wanted to say that, you know, uh, that's why, I mean, that's why we are having these kind of discussions because uh, the sort of mainstream forums don't want to discuss this, don't want to discuss her work or Kate Millett or Shulamit Fast on as she writes. So I just wanted to uh, sort of end on that note. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, somebody says he will cut you smoothing off his rough, rough edges on you um, and leave you bleeding. Um, whoever said that, you should write that down. That's something that Andrea Dworkin would say. Um, I've mentioned a couple of other books in the course of this, um, which I would really recommend. Um, Kate Millett's Sexual Politics. Um, tough book to get to, it's, get through. It's a really big book, um, but it is like one of the absolutely core works of radical feminism. She was she was brilliant. It's a it's a it's a wonderful book. Um, other books by Andrea Dworkin. We've mentioned uh, uh, Intercourse. Um, her first book, Woman Hating, also a very very difficult book to get through. Um, that I would really uh, recommend. Um, there was a, another thing that I'll just very briefly talk about about men women being economically dependent upon men, and we can speak from a position of privilege, maybe here in this country where um, many women can be economically independent from men, but recognize that in much of the world or in, or in you know, parts of the US for, for some women, um, they can't do that. Um, and um, we do not leave our people behind. These are our sisters and we should be doing everything we can um, for the women in our own country, for the women in the world to be able to um, achieve that kind of independence and, and walk away. Um, we are about out of time. Um, Thank you all so much for being here um, and um, liberation. Thank you. liberation.